Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books Network. I'm Galina Nelimorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at the PFL in Switzerland, and I will be your host today. Today, we'll be talking to Paul Morland about the new book, Tomorrow's People, The Future of Humanity in 10 Numbers, The Great Forces of Population Change, The Balance of Births, Deaths and Migrations have made the world what it is today. Tomorrow's People provides a fascinating, illuminating and thought-provoking tour of an emerging new world. Nobody who wants to understand that world should be without it. Paul, welcome to the show. Hello. So, how are you? How was your week? How was my week? Well, it's a bit early in the week to say. I had a nice <laughs> weekend. I went cycling in into the middle of London and enjoyed the sunny weather. Excellent. So, can you tell us what do you do? Uh, I do two things, actually. I write books and articles about population, which sort of span out of my PhD, but I'm also a business consultant. Uh, I have clients in mostly in financial services who I advise about uh, both project management and um, business strategy. Very rarely do these two worlds come together. So my clients rarely demand uh, advice on demography. So that's uh, th- these are two parts of my life that kind of run in parallel. How did you get interested in studying demographics? Well, um, I think our interests often have biographical or autobiographical roots. I would say in my case, an interest in demography came from two things. First of all, I was born and brought up in a suburb of London called Wembley, which is very famous <coughs> for its football. Uh, less well known probably internationally for the fact that it is one of the first parts of London that became very ethnically diverse very, very early on. So I saw before my eyes rapid ethnic change in uh, Wembley, in my home suburb, and I found it interesting to start thinking about why that was. And then the other thing is when I was in my 20s and got married and started to have my own family, I was very interested in observing the fertility choices of friends and relations, some of whom were not interested in having children at all, others had as many as six or seven. And I thought it was uh, both interesting to understand why they made those choices, and then also um, that those choices writ large on a big scale were going to have a big impact on the world of the future. So you mentioned that you're both academic and also a consultant. So can you tell us how do you marry these two worlds, if you do? Well, I've been running my own consultancy since uh, about 2002, and sometimes I have clients back to back, and sometimes I have gaps between them. And in a gap between them, I thought, let's kick off my PhD uh, with these demographic interests. It's an opportunity. My own kids at that point were a bit older. They were past the nappy changing stage. They were probably at secondary school. So I had a little more time and a gap between clients. And I thought, well, I'll kick this off. I'll have a nosy round, find someone to supervise me, think of a, a subject 
within demography. <clears throat> as soon as I had actually found a supervisor and kicked it off, I got busy at work again. But I managed to do Fridays and Sundays. Those were my days. Saturday was with the family. Fridays and Sundays were a day when I wasn't working and I would do my research and write up. Um, and I managed to get my PhD done pretty quickly, actually. three took me just over three years on that basis. And I think, actually, it's an enormous help when you have a... Uh, long track record in the workplace and you're used to the pressures of office life and demanding clients and corporations, um, you take a very business-like approach to research and writing and you can get things done fairly efficiently. And along along your career journey, uh, were there any mentors or colleagues that were really supportive and really helpful along the way? Thinking about the world of academia and demography, I suppose there were two people who I would particularly single out. Um, one was a friend of mine and a neighbour, significantly older. He's no longer with us. He was a uh, theorist of nationalism, not a demographer, but a great academic, a great writer. Uh, his name was Professor Anthony D. Smith. He was a professor at the London School of Economics. And he wasn't very well for the last 10 years of his life. And I would pop in and see him most weeks. And we'd chat for an hour about anything and everything. We have many, many interests in common, including uh, classical music, which we were both passionate about. And we could talk about for hours, but also about the world of academia, about how you start to think of a PhD topic. And he said, although he wasn't a demographer, my first book, which was a write-up of my PhD, really, that was about demography and ethnic conflict and concepts of ethnicity and nationalism. And certainly he was a big influence on that. So I would definitely mention Anthony Smith. And then when I was looking around for a supervisor, I found um, the perfect person who had just the same sets of interests of what I wanted to write about. His name is uh, Professor Eric Kaufman. <clears throat> it just so happened that Eric Kaufman was a student many, many years ago of Anthony Smith. So that was a, a sort of nice introductory card. And not only was Eric a fantastic supervisor when I wrote my PhD, but he's also been a great supporter of everything I've done since. And he reads all that I write and, and makes very helpful critical comments. I suppose the other person I would also mention um, is a chap called David Goodhart, who is more of a journalist. He started um, a, a journal called Prospect about 20 years ago in the UK. And he's, he has many interests. He works for a a think tank called Policy Exchange. And like Eric, he's very supportive in what I do and very helpful. Uh, for example, he introduced me to my agent, Toby Mundy. So uh, he's a, he has been a great support in the work that I've uh, been undertaking in demography. And what would you say to our student listeners and also early career researchers? Well, if they're thinking of making a life in academia and thinking of um, becoming academics, I would say uh, think very carefully about your PhD topic. So the PhD topic I chose, which was demographic engineering, uh, ethnic groups and how they use demography and their struggles with each other, was a, a, a useful field to study because there'd been a little bit of work done in it but not very much. You want to find a topic that you're very interested in where others have sort of started to make some headway. You're not inventing things from scratch. It is a recognised field. It's got some literature in, but there's lots and lots of space to make a contribution. 
Oh, that's an excellent advice. <laughs> okay, so your latest book is Tomorrow's People, The Future of Humanity in 10 Numbers. Can you tell us how did you come to writing it? Well, I think I'll have to go back, if I can, to my first book, which, as I said, was a write-up of my PhD thesis, uh, Demographic Engineering. And as I was writing that, it occurred to me that there obviously I was doing a lot of research, I was spending a lot of time in libraries, I was looking a lot of books and articles, and it seemed to me there was not a good book, or even any book, which looked at the big demographic transitions of the last 200 years and said, how has that affected the big trends in world history? and um, sort of pulled these together. So you get really good historians like Richard Evans, who take demography very seriously, has got serious things to say about demography in the periods he writes about. But he's not essentially writing about demography. And you've, got me- you've had many wonderful demo- demographic historians who've looked at very specific issues in demography and examined them very closely. Uh, Wrigley and Schofield at Cambridge would be the classic uh, case. But you hadn't had anyone, I don't think, who'd written a sort of broad book on the development of demography over 200 years and said not only what caused those changes, but what caused, what, what did they in turn cause? What were the effects of demographic change? How did big population trends drive um, the rise and fall of great powers, economic booms and busts, um, and all the great great events of history. And in fact, if you scratch the surface, almost everything has got some demographic component. Doesn't mean demography explains everything, but it explains so much. So that gave me the idea to write The Human Tide, which was my second book, which came out three years ago. And then as I was writing The Human Tide, it occurred to me, well, if the great forces of the past have been shaped by demography, then demography is still shaping the world that we live in, and it will shape the future. So there's probably another book to be written, which is how are demographic forces today at work making the world uh, as we as we experience it, live in it, and what does that mean for the future? And so rather than The Human Tide, which is a historical book looking at the trends in demography over time, it's really taking a snapshot of today and saying, what are the big forces at work today? How are they shaping our world and how will they shape its future? So let's delve into the book and we can start with the very basics. So can you just explain what exactly does the demographics study? It studies population, which essentially means births, deaths, and the movement of people. So to give you an example, in uh, about 1800, Britain was having a very large uh, population boom. What was causing that? Well, British women had always had a lot of children. Um, A lot of those children had died. The population until the middle of the 18th century had not grown all that rapidly. And then suddenly... Uh, the death rate fell, the birth rate went up a little bit, and um, the population boomed. And that allowed Britons to settle uh, Australia, uh, North America, much of North America and other parts of the world, which in turn had a very big impact on the world. Um, by contrast, in France, for all sorts of complicated reasons, there wasn't a huge population boom. So demography will ask the question, why did you have that boom in Britain? And not in America. Was it about, uh, not sorry, not in France? Was it about births? Was it about deaths? And then it digs a low le- level deeper and it says, well, why were the births higher here or the deaths higher there? And then what I'm doing increasingly is to say, well, okay, that's all very interesting, but what was the consequence of that? So, for example, when the Americans 
uh, bought the Louisiana Purchase from the French, which is a huge chunk of what's now the Midwest. I mean, it's about a, almost a third of continental USA. There were a hundred times as many people in the young United States of America, which was by then about sort of 15, 20 years old as a state, than there were in the French uh, area of Louisiana, which actually, as I say, is a huge chunk of the central continental US. So my argument is that the Americans were going to roll in there one way or another, and they were going to do that because they had huge population advantage. So demography is about understanding, as I say, those births, deaths and movements, and then about thinking what the causes were and what the consequences have been. And how do you approach studying demographics? Well, a real demographer who is an academic looking at demography in itself rather than what I do, which is more looking at its consequences, will look very closely at um, the births and the deaths. Now, today, that's not so difficult to do because we have very good sources of information in many countries. I mean, you can still doubt whether... Essentially, the poorer the country, the less good its records are. Uh, But in a country like the UK or most of Europe, most of East Asia, the data is very, very reliable. So the government, usually the government records these things and they become public. The United Nations pulls them all together. So does the World Bank. So there are multiple sources on how many children were born, how many women were of childbearing age, so how many children each woman is having, how many people died and what the causes of those deaths were and what age they died at, so how long they could expect to live. That information is very widely available now, so I'm able to pick up on that and um, use it to draw out bigger patterns. But what a lot of demographers would be actually working on those data. So we got a census coming out in Britain in the next month or so. And they will have been working on what are the right questions? How do we structure the form? How do we ensure that it's being widely distributed and and responded to? Who do we think is going to respond? How might we adjust the numbers to um, reflect the fact that some sorts of people may be more likely to respond than others? How do we interpret all that information? And so, for example, if you know how many deaths there were uh, in a given year and what age people died at, what does that mean for how long they can expect a person can expect to live if he or she is 20 or 5 or 25? And then um, looking at things like infant mortality, how many children die in the first year? How is that changing? That can be very important. So, in Britain, we had a bit of a wobble. Uh, normally, we've got very low infant mortality, not as low as some outstanding countries in other parts of Europe, but or, or Asia indeed, but generally quite low. We had a bit of a wobble. It went up for a bit and down for a bit. So it didn't go up very much, but it went up enough for people to say, well, what is this about? Is it about maybe immigrant mothers are not getting enough information from the NHS? Maybe childcare provision uh, or, or, or support for mothers in their uh, first month is not uh, not any longer doing what it needs to do. So it can have very practical consequences in people's lives. Well, there's a wealth of really crucial information uh, from all of this uh, data. Yeah, we can't really be a mature, developed society without understanding these issues, without understanding how many people are born and how many people die and what age uh, people are dying at. And also, uh, how many people are coming into the country and how many people are going out of it. You need that to to think about planning for schools and hospitals and old age homes. And it's interesting, in Britain, we started our census in 
uh, the beginning of the, the 19th century, so just over 200 years ago, at a point when the state was increasingly taking an interest in these things. But censuses are a lot older than that. I mean, they go back to biblical days. We know that uh, there were various censuses mentioned in the Bible, both um, in the Old and the New Testament, that the ancient Egyptians were counting their number of people. But in those cases, it was very much about thinking about wars and how you could raise an army. But as time has gone by, it's been increasingly about how the state provides the kind of welfare and services that its citizens have come to expect. So you already mentioned a couple of the components and measures that you use. Can you explain what they mean? Something like birth rates, death rates? Sure. So a birth rate and a fertility rate are both about how many people are being born. And a death rate and a life expectancy are about when people die. But they're slightly different things. So the birth rate simply looks at a country and it says, how many deaths were there? Sorry, how many births were there for a birth rate? How many people were there? And what, therefore, what percentage of people died in a given year or were born as a percentage of the total population? And it's normally expressed per thousand. So if we have a birth rate of 10 per thousand, that means that for every 100 people in the country at, at the start of the year or the middle of the year, one was born. Similarly, with death rates, they're per thousand. So if you have a death rate of 20 per thousand, it means that 2% of the population died in the course of the year. The trouble with those measures, and they are useful, is they're a bit crude. So if you take a country like Japan, let's say, and a country like Cameroon, Japan is a very old country. It's full of old people. And Cameroon is a very young country. People haven't lived very long. A lot of people die relatively young. They have very large families. And so you might have two countries with a similar population size, say, but you would expect them to have different death rates. You would expect Japan to have a higher death rate because um, it's got more old people. But then on the other hand, Cameroon has a higher death rate because it doesn't have as good uh, welfare services or provision. People aren't as well fed. So coming out with something like a life expectancy, which is a slightly more complicated calculation, will tell you how long people can expect to live. So even if a lot of people are dying in Japan, that may be because they're already old. And Japan might have a life expectancy of something like 85. A similarly high proportion of people might be dying in the Cameroon, but because it's a very young country, they'd have a much lower life expectancy, um, maybe 60 or 55. And so life expectancy looks beyond the simple crude death rate and says, how long are people actually living? And that tells you a lot about wealth, healthcare provision, and so on. Similarly, with fertility rates, you might have two countries of the similar size population and a similar number of births. But in one of them, it might be full of old people, in which case a relatively few number of women are producing quite a lot of children. In the other, there might be lots of young women, each producing fewer children. And the overall effect is that they're having the same number of births and the same birth rate. So fertility rate looks at the number of, of women of fertile years, looks at how many children were born in a year, very roughly, and says, okay, if you had, let's say, a million women of fertile years, and you had 100,000 babies born, that means each of the fertile women is giving birth to about a tenth of a baby every year. So if she's fertile for 30 years, she'll have three children, and that would be the total fertility rate. I'm sorry, it gets a little bit technical, but it, again, it's really a distinction between a crude measure of just the births as a share of the population 
versus a more sophisticated measure of how many children people are actually having individually. Yeah, for sure. These are such interesting measures when you go right into the detail. And actually, well, most of us hear the life expectancy, uh, this uh, concept quite, quite often that uh, different countries have different life expectancies, but it's really difficult to understand it fully and especially in a historical context. So, for example, if the life expectancy of a country was lower some time ago, that did not mean that no human lived beyond specific age. Like, for example, example, over 90. There were not even people who were over 90, were there? Of course. I mean, first of all, it's always the case that it is an average and there will be exceptional individuals who have lived much longer. But the other thing that's often not understood about um, life expectancy is it's hugely skewed by infant mortality. So if you have a child dying in his or her first year, or even below 15, that has a very big effect on life expectancy. Something like COVID predominantly killing off older people had a relatively modest effect on life expectancy. Because it when you're looking at a child you're looking who dies you're looking at a huge number of lost years historically about a third of children would die before they were aged one in most societies until 200 years ago and in many societies until 50 years ago and maybe two-thirds of people would die before they got to the age of i don't know 15 or 20 when they might have their own children So, you know, you had to have six children to produce two who'd be able to reproduce. But what it meant for life expectancy was life expectancy in those societies often looked very low, 30 or 40, and it was low. The people we know about, the famous people, the people we hear about are the ones who didn't die in their first year or probably in their first 15 years. Once you'd made it over that hurdle, you had a reasonable chance of living till maybe 50 or 60. So uh, it is just an average and it gets very skewed. And what happens is as you get your infant mortality rate down rapidly, which has happened in many countries in the world, your life expectancy grows extremely fast. Keeping an 84-year-old alive till he or she is 87 is a fantastic achievement, but it only adds marginally to life expectancy. Avoiding a th- going from a third of your babies dying to maybe two in a thousand, which is the case in the very best countries, some countries in Eastern Europe and East Asia, uh, that has a huge, has, has a far bigger effect on the life expectancy number. And you can think of it simply as adding more years to human lives by saving a baby from not dying versus extending the life of an older person. So how did the human population demographics change throughout uh, the history? Were there like big trends? Well, I try and draw out a very simple picture in my latest book. I mean, the human tide tells the story of of how this changed over time. But in my in my latest book, I try and give us a, a much simpler story of the past so I can focus on the present and the future. And I talk about pre-modern, modern and post-modern. And it's very crude and simplistic, but I think it more or less captures it. So until about 1800, <coughs> excuse me, almost everywhere in the world was living in what we would call Malthusian conditions. You may know Thomas Malthus, uh, writer in Britain around the end of the 18th, the beginning of the 19th century. And he talked about what we now call a Malthusian system, whereby people had lots of children, lots of them died, and um, life expectancy was very short. 
If things got better, if you got a good crop or you discovered a new technique in agriculture or you found a new island you could plant crops on, the food output would go up. But instead of people's lives improving, just more of the children would survive. The population would expand to a new frontier and then everyone would live on a kind of miserable edge uh, with Mm. very few people leading comfortable lives. Because the population just expanded to the edge of what the capacity, the carrying capacity of a country was to support them. Then we go through uh, what I call modernity, and that's the demographic transition. So first of all, for reasons we talked about a little bit, getting life expectancy longer, bringing down infant mortality, healthcare, better food, and so on. First of all, you get a fall. You get you get a fall in your mortality rate. So you're still having six, seven children, but they're not all dying very young. And so the population rises enormously. And then eventually people are more urbanized, they're more educated. There are a whole series of reasons why more urban, more educated, more wealthy people have smaller families. And eventually you get to the point where you're not only has your death rate come down, your birth rates come down and you have a much bigger population, but it stabilizes. That is basically a story of material improvement, if you like. What I argue we're now in is a postmodern period. We are either all at that point where we've all got low fertility and low mortality, or we're very close to getting there. Even some of the poorest countries in the world have brought their infant mortality down enormously. And fertility is coming down almost everywhere. I mean, maybe we'll talk about where it isn't. <clears throat> Outside sub-Saharan Africa, almost everywhere has got either low or it's getting to low fertility rates pretty rapidly, a few exceptions. Within sub-Saharan Africa, some countries are making that transition, some aren't. So what I think will matter in the future is not really material conditions, because we're all moving to a place where material conditions are better, people have control over their fertility, women are more educated. What will matter is the values. Everyone will have choices. And the question will then be who chooses because of their values, their belief systems to have larger families and who doesn't. So can you give us a few examples of your favorite sort of changes in human demographics, for example, population growth or decline? Well, the way that I organize the book is around 10 numbers. And the I, I do this because uh, I think it's easier for people to grasp a small number of, uh, of data points. And then I expand on those and say why they're significant and, of course, how they link together. So if I just picked a few of those. The population of Africa by about 2100 is likely to be 4 billion. So over the course of 150 years, from about 1950 to about 2100, the ratio of Europeans to Africans will have gone for two Europeans to one African to about five or six Africans to one European. Now, that has a huge number of consequences. It changes economics, it changes politics, it changes the balance of power. And of course, other things matter too. So you can't simply say, well, therefore, X, Y, and Z. But what you can say is it will be a different world and that you can't really understand the world that's coming into being if you don't understand those kind of basic demographic facts that Africa is booming and that um, Europe is shriveling demographically because of the fertility choices and the life expectancy of their people. At the other end of the spectrum, I picked Bulgaria which has got is expected between about 1980 when its population peaked and about 2080 to have undergone a more than 50% population decline. 
of course, we can't be absolutely sure, but we don't expect fertility in Bulgaria to rise much. Um, and we roughly know how uh, life expectancy will continue. Bulgaria is in the EU, so of course it has uh, it, its people have the opportunity to migrate to quite wealthy countries, but it's not really a major destination for people to come to. There has been some immigration to Bulgaria, but not very much. So you've got the perfect conditions for population decline. And again, and Bulgaria is you know, only one country, but it's typical of a lot of the world. A lot of the world is going to be moving into that kind of realm, including quite poor countries like Thailand and China, uh, some countries in Latin America, um, and of course, lots of countries across Europe. And again, that has huge consequences. Now, exactly what they'll be, we can debate. But we know that the countryside empties out, that villages get um, abandoned, that the population ages, it tends to concentrate in, in the larger cities. You know, there are possibly opportunities there for nature to return where once uh, man had put, pushed nature out. Certainly the environmentalists are happy when they see declining human population. So I think what's interesting about Bulgaria, it's an extreme case, but it is not atypical. And more and more of the world, which has had long-standing low fertility, with only moderately increasing life expectancy, has got the potential for population decline. The only thing that's stopping it in some countries is mass immigration. And that in turn has a very big impact on the ethnic mix in certain countries. So is this kind of shift in population an, an anomaly or is it within the general realms of fluctuation? Well, that's an excellent question. And I would say it is an anomaly, but over quite a long period of time. So I think what you've got before 1800 was a more or less random walk, very slow increase in populations. In Europe, we have good records, and we know that something like the Middle Ages, starting around eight or 900, civilization uh, progressed. There was some relearning of things that had been got forgotten in the Roman period. There were better saddles on horses. The food production could grow. There was uh, ways of reclaiming land that had been marshland and so on. And so there was a rise and rise and rise of the European population, nothing very fast. And then it was knocked back by the Black Death. Then it grew again. So... In most of the world, there were periods of progress and periods in which the population got knocked back. What started in Britain and Northwest Europe in about 1800 and then went viral everywhere was the, the demographic transition I talked about, the fall in death rates, eventually the fall in birth rates and a huge expansion of the population. Um, so if you looked at a chart of global population, you would see for Britain anyway, obviously it takes off about 1800, but for the rest of the world, for most of the world, it really sort of spikes up in the 20th century. And you had countries like Kenya and Guatemala, which in the middle of the 20th century were having three, 4% population growth per annum, which is phenomenal if you think about it. Um, when the world had sort of struggled along at 0.2 or 0.3% for hundreds of years. But now we're going into the sort of the brakes are screeching on. And whilst if you looked at a, a, a chart of world population, you'd see this fantastic, extraordinary explosion. You'd also see in the last few decades a very fast decline in the rate of growth. So the population of the world was growing about 2% per annum back in about, <coughs> excuse me, 1970. And now it's growing about 1%. And by the end of the century, it will probably have stopped growing altogether. 
all of this is quite unprecedented. What's precedent? Um, what, what was the precedent before eighteen hundred was the random walk of a bit of progress, a knockback. Underlying that was a very, very slow, steady uh, forward movement, growth in population. What we've had, and what's unusual, is this extraordinary explosion followed by the drop-off. So, another topic of the concern, basically, throughout the world is the ageing of the population. So, what's happening there? Well, the sort of pattern that I told you about, where, first of all, um, death rates come down and then birth rates come down, and then birth rates continue to come down. What that means is you get fewer and fewer young people and then you get longer life expectancy. So if you take a country like Japan, that's a sort of classic case. It's had very low fertility rates for a long time, and it's very good at keeping people alive. Um, And and what happens, first of all, you get a rise in the median age. So if you line the the population up, the person in the middle gets older and older. It would typically have been 20 or 25 in the past. Now, in a lot of countries, it's in the mid-40s. The, the middle person in, in his or her mid-40s or even late 40s in very old countries like Germany and Japan. Then the other thing that happens is people live very much longer and you get an explosion in the number of very old people. So the people 100 plus. That has a lot of implications. I mean, a, society, a young society is very different from an old society. A couple of things that you need to think about. One is that... Um, a high median age tends to correlate with more peace and less crime. So older countries don't tend to go to war and they don't tend to have high murder rates. Um, that doesn't mean that never happens. And of course, Ukraine and Russia are examples of quite elderly countries in terms of the population. They have low uh, birth rates. They don't have terribly long life expectancy, but it's not bad. So they have quite high median ages. You wouldn't expect countries that old to go to war, but they have. But generally, a Switzerland or a Norway is more likely to be peaceful and crime-free, let's say, than an El Salvador or a Syria full of young men, um, uh, young people. There are pros and cons of having lots of young people. They do tend to be more violent and bellicose. They're also more creative and more energetic. And as you get ageing, you get stultification of the economy. Economies are less dynamic. I talk about grey capital and grey labour. So grey labour is just having a lot of older people in the workforce, the workforce starting to age, running out of people to do the jobs that need to be done, Um, not enough young entrepreneurs. Grey capital is the idea that as you get an ageing population, more and more people are, more and more of the capital is held by the elderly, and the elderly have different priorities in terms of investment, so they're more interested in channelling their money into government bonds, and that, of course, raises the role of the state. The other thing that raises the role of the state is, uh, in most developed countries, people look to the government to provide them with some kind of pensions, some kind of health care, and increasingly some kind of what we call personal care in the UK, that is uh, financial support to be looked after in old age. And that puts a huge strain on the state exactly at the time when the workforce is beginning to decline and there are fewer and fewer people to pay the taxes. So this is going to be a very big challenge for all the countries that are ageing. Um, and that's that at the moment is everywhere, pretty much from Japan to Europe to North America. But a lot of countries in East Asia won't be far behind them.
So do you think something like technology can help in this case? Well, it's an interesting question. Uh, There are books like the famous Rise of the Robots, which more or less say it doesn't matter because the robots are going to be able to do everything. And uh, that's very nice in theory. But here we are in 2022, and I'm still waiting for a robot that will clean my house Hmm. or a robot that will cut my lawn. I think there may be things that can cut lawns. I don't think they do it particularly well. Um, When I have a problem, that when I have a light that needs fixing, um, I don't know a robot that can fix my electrics or or do my plumbing or take my mother to a uh, hospital appointment or, you know, look after... Uh, someone in hospital say look these technologies are advancing and they make people more effective and efficient Um, I'm dubious in the next 20 years let's say and this is not my area of expertise but from what I've read I mean we talk about self-driving cars they'll probably come okay but you know that will release a lot of people who currently drive for a living but I don't I see lots and lots and lots of tasks that you would think would be pretty quite simple and straightforward. But I don't think we're anywhere near robots doing. I mean, one example, famous example, is the collection of bins. So we leave our bins outside the, 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 the front of the house and the van comes along every week and a man, it's always a man, comes out and pulls the bins along and empties it into the um, truck, truck and pulls them back. Now, you'd think that wasn't that complicated an issue, but apparently it really cannot be done. That sort of spatial awareness can't be done very well by robots. So, And, and there's no prospect that they will be able to do it. So, yes, robots will help make labour more efficient so we can perhaps deploy it more effectively across the economy. But I don't think the, and I could be wrong here, but I don't think the technology is going to arrive in time to save us from labour shortages. Now, a a statistic I quote quite often is that when I started in the workplace in the UK in the mid 80s, we had two people in their early 20s for everyone in their early 60s. So roughly, look, people joined the workforce a bit earlier. Not everyone went to university by any means then. Um, Or people can retire early or later. But broadly, there were about There was about two people coming into the workforce for every one leaving it. Now in Britain, those numbers are about the same. And that's true in lots and lots of countries. And it's only going in one direction. And as a result, everyone I speak to who's in the business world has problems recruiting. We have, pro- we have sh- in the autumn, just to give you two examples, we had a huge shortage in Britain of tanker drivers bringing petrol to the petrol stations. Okay, it's just one example. So that got patched up. But at the other end of the spectrum, we're terribly short of lawyers in all sorts of fields. And I think in part, of course, Brexit has made a contribution. COVID has been a disruptive element. But the underlying demography is such that when you have two people entering the workforce for everyone leaving it, you're feeding the labour market all the time. And that we've kind of come, got used to expecting that. Now we're in a world where it's a one for one and it's going to get worse. And therefore, um, either we're going to have to have mass immigration or we're going to have to learn to live with a more stagnant economy or eventually we're going to have to have more children. So how things like food, education, availability of shelter are intertwined with demographics? In my book, I give 10 numbers, as I said, and eight of those are strictly demographic numbers, like the 4 billion Africans um, by the end of this century, or like the um, 
decline of the population of Bulgaria, all the rise of ethnic minorities in the United States, um, all the fertility rate in Singapore. So these are all illustrations. But then I finished the book with two chapters which are not strictly demographic, but which feed in very much to the demographic situation. So one is the rise of education, because as I say in the book, uh, there is a qualitative rise in humans, even as their numbers are quantitatively stag- going to stagnate. Um, whether you look at the bottom end and look at how many people are literate, or you look at the top end and say how many people are going to university or getting PhDs, there's a huge rise in education across the range. So whereas in about 1800, 90% of people in the world were illiterate, today about 90% are literate. And of course, that means we can get a lot more out of people and people get a lot more out of their lives, I think, when they've had those sorts of opportunities. And the example I give is Bangladesh, where the vast majority of women are now literate, which was not the case as recently as 50 years ago when Bangladesh gained its independence from Pakistan. So there has been a fantastic um, upgrading, if you like, of people in terms of their education and their productivity as a result. Um, The other number I give in the book is 375%, which is the rise in cereal production in Ethiopia in the last um, 25 years. Now, I talked earlier about um, the first demographer, well, perhaps the first demographer, it depends how you define these terms, um, Thomas Malthus, who um, essentially said, yes, wars will come along, and uh, and there'll be wars, there'll be catastrophes, there'll be pandemics, then the population will rise again. But it'll all, the, the thing that will ultimately always contain population will be food. And food output will only grow gradually. And human growth would, would naturally be much faster than the, a small percentage per annum that, or per decade that food production can grow. And so humans will always knock against this Malthusian frontier. Um, what's changed is not only that people aren't having as many children, anything like as many children, because we can control our fertilities in ways that Malthus couldn't imagine, but also we are massively more productive in food production than we ever thought we could be. Um, very often people say it's coming to an end. It sort of it, it hit a bit of a barrier at the beginning of the 20th century before the, the creation of artificial fertilizers and the fixation of nitrogen. Uh, It hit another barrier in the 60s, and we had the Green Revolution and new strains of rice. And there are sort of great heroes of of this story, like Harbour and Borlau and so on. But essentially, we have managed to push uh, our ability to produce food to fantastic lengths. And of course, now we're starting to see population growth slowing down. So, of course, we are in for a really difficult time at the moment with Ukraine and Russia and all the disruption in food supplies and people will go hungry but our essential ability as a human race to create food is continuing to grow exponentially and actually our population growth is flattening out and i think that will be good news because it should mean that in the medium term once we're over this hump uh, there come to be comes to be more and more food the number of people um who need that food is going to flatten off and and eventually possibly fall. And again, I think that's good for the environment because it does mean that we will be able to devote less space to the production of food and more to nature. And in fact, already in many countries like like Japan, like Russia, much of Eastern Europe, there is a um, already noted trend of people abandoning agricultural land and that agricultural land returning 
to um, back to nature. So when you look towards the future, what would be your kind of best scenarios? When you say best, do you mean most optimistic or do you think you mean the, the guess that I think is most likely? Well, it's it's up to you. Maybe best from uh, the point of view of humanity, best from the point of view of the environment. There's lots to be optimistic about. So I think um, it, it, it's good that we are bringing down our population growth, um, that humanity is not just going to grow. I mean, if it continued growing at the level of the 1960s and 70s globally, that would have been a real problem. Uh, it's good that we are able to produce so much food. It is and, and other raw materials and, and uh, provide such high standards of living for so many people. And that will, I think, only get better. It's also quite good in some ways that we have older populations, that they will be more peaceable and they will be less criminal. So that makes me optimistic for humanity, but it does bring with it some big challenges. I worry about the fall in fertility rates. Um, if you have sub-replacement fertility, fertility below 2.1, say, for a long time, it takes a while before you get that real ageing and population fall, but it is going to be a challenge to us. We are absolutely going to rely on the robots and on the rise of technology, and we're just going to hope, have to hope that we get... I mean, as I said, I don't think in the next 20 years robots are going to do these jobs significantly, but, but either we're going to have to live in very difficult circumstances where we don't have enough people in, in looking after the elderly um, and providing health care and doing all the other things we need, or we're going to have to fix the technology, or we are going to have to have more children. And eventually, if we continue with a falling fertility rate on and on, and more and more countries fall into that uh, zone, what I call the infertile crescent, which covers so much of the world today, where people are not having enough children to replace themselves, then we will eventually see the demise of the human race. And now thinking about the bigger picture, so how important is it uh, for us to educate our society about all of these issues? Well, I think Everyone is better off knowing about them. I'm surprised how little people tend to know about demography. I suppose because I've had my nose stuck in demography for the last 15 or so years. Mm. I sometimes write things for newspapers and um, I think, oh, they'll say, but everyone knows this. But people don't know it, actually. And <clears throat> I don't think demography tells you everything you need to know. But I think if you go around the world, whether you're in, uh, you know, an academic or a student, or a business person, or you're a civil servant, or a diplomat, any of these things, to go around the world not understanding some of these big trends, where's fertility up, where's it down, where are populations surging, where are they declining, what is the ethnic balance in various parts of the world, and how's that changing, and how's that feeding into politics, I think you're flying blind. I think you need to understand these things if you are going to be an informed and educated citizen of the world which doesn't mean we have to teach them in the schools. I mean, we teach them to some extent in the schools, but not in any great detail. The school curriculum is already quite um, cluttered. But I do wish more people were writing about and reading about demography generally, because I think it's extremely interesting. It's extremely relevant to our own lives individually. And you see it writ large in the great events going on in the world today, and you understand those, and you're able to navigate your way around them much better if you've got a basic grasp of demographic reality and how it's changing. And what discoveries in your research for your book, Tomorrow's People, surprised you the most? 
Well, the biggest surprise was my um, the upset of my intention to actually get on the road and go off to a number of countries um, and and explore from the from the grassroots what was going on. I'd planned to go to Kenya, Bulgaria, and Japan, and of course, the biggest surprise was along came COVID, and I had to write the book from my desk. Of course, mm. I have. Um, spend a lot of time traveling in the world in the past. So I was able to draw on my experiences of that. I suppose COVID was the biggest surprise in the process of, of writing the book. I suppose the um, biggest surprise when it came to writing the, the book as a whole, I suppose I knew a lot of the facts anyway, but what I hadn't appreciated is that as you get an aging of the population and as you get a... Um, lengthening of life expectancy you get an absolute explosion of um the very old so in japan the very old the over hundreds have gone from a few thousand to seventy nine thousand in just a few decades um so that was a bit of a shock and i suppose the other thing that really surprised me i think one data point that really surprised me and i almost struggle still to believe it is that the fertility rate in calcutta is one so the average woman in calcutta has one child now India had a reputation for very high fertility, but it's true everywhere in the world that when a country uh, develops, its fertility rate comes down. And we saw people in France in the 19th century saying, oh, the Germans will always have a high fertility rate. And the Germans a couple of decades later were saying, oh, the Russians will always have a high fertility rate and on and on. But it, and the Italian mama who had such so many children, all these countries now have low fertility rates. So all the stereotypes get blown up eventually. But I didn't realise that in a city like Calcutta, which it, I haven't been to for... Um, about 40 years, um, that people would be having so few children. India has really brought its fertility rate down. It's about two on average across the country because there are great varieties within India. And for a city that's still relatively poor, like Calcutta, to have a fertility rate of one is quite staggering. So would you have any favourite movies or books, uh, like maybe fiction, like science fiction, or, or about our humanities impending doom or triumph? Um, science fiction has looked at, at these, uh, you know, there are various novels that have looked at um, the drop-off of fertility and um, what would happen if people couldn't have children and how they might value them. I suppose some of Philip K. Dick's work is quite interesting in that respect. Um, some of which has been turned into into movies. I have to admit, I'm a great lover of literature, but I don't really like dystopian novels. So um, I couldn't really recommend a novel particularly uh, that, that deals with demography. Now, I'm afraid, boring though the answer is, I think demography is best dealt with by... Um, by books, uh, by factual books on the subject. But I certainly do my best to make sure they're not, not dry, but they're quite interesting and full of anecdote. <coughs> I suppose the other book that comes to mind is The Camp of the Saints. It's a French book from about 60 years ago, which talks about vast movements of people from the third world. And I think that, like the Philip K. Dick uh, do Androids Dream of Sheep, um, in, which, which looked at expected kind of low, low fertility rates in a way, um, the Camp of the Saints, the author I forget, I'm afraid, um, looked at mass movements of people, which I think we are beginning to see, and tragically we see across the uh, Mediterranean every week.
And when you think about all of the human population demographics, do you ever think whether you would like to live forever? I absolutely know I would not like to live forever, no. But I think what's really interesting, though, is life expectancy goes up. What doesn't go up much, really, is the life of the oldest person. So the oldest person is usually between about 117 and 120 and living in Japan. <clears throat> so I think there does seem to be some natural limit to human ageing. Obviously, life expectancy would grow. We could all get, instead of just the odd person, we could all get towards 120. But under current circumstances, 120 pretty much seems the limit, um, which I think is foretold in the Bible, actually. Um, so what's, I, I don't really believe in, in um, immortality. But what I think would be very interesting is if we imagine we live not to... You know, we didn't push it gradually up from 80 to 90 to 100 to 110. But imagine people were living for 250 years. Now, that's not crazy. That's not science fiction. But I think the way we would conceive of our lives would be very different. And, of course, the question then would be, what would be the trajectory of ageing? If we all lived to 120, would we just lead most of our lives as very, very old people? Or would we effectively have slowed down the ageing process so that someone aged 100 was like a 50-year-old? Um, and of course, again, you know, this this is the boundaries of my knowledge and expertise. I talk about it briefly in the book. I say the day after tomorrow's people. So I can foretell what's, what tomorrow's people might be like. But beyond that, it is science fiction. Um, but personally, no, I have no desire or intention to live forever. Um, a normal lifespan will be good enough for me. But of course, it's a paradox. You don't want to live forever, but there's no one point in time when you want to die, probably. Mm -hmm. Um, that's just something we all have to live with. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> well, this has been a fascinating discussion. So can you tell us what are you currently working on and what will be your next project? I have written um, two books now in, well, I published The Human Tide about three years ago. <coughs> Excuse me. And The, the uh, Tomorrow's People just came back out a couple of months ago. So that's quite, um, and, and my first book was only a few years before that. So I've been thinking about three possible future books, um, and I haven't really progressed any of them very much. Um, I'll tell you about each of them briefly. One is to write something like The Human Tide and Tomorrow's People strictly about Britain. So what were the great trends in Britain and what have, and how is Britain's future um, going to pan out because of the big population changes we've got here? So a book of local interest and moving away from the sort of big global sweep. A second book I would be interested in writing would be the demography of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, which is something that I touched on in my first book. I think that's been a conflict that has been very much uh, one where demography, population movements have been at the centre, both migrations and uh, fertility rates. Um, and I have written a few newspaper articles about that. And the third one would be the book about the infertile crescent. So really trying to get beneath the skin of why it is that people across the world in really diverse countries from Europe to Asia, Christian countries, Muslim countries, uh, Buddhist countries, are having much, much smaller families. Trying to understand why that is and then look at those counterexamples, those communities or those countries where despite being developed, they're still having replacement level and seeing what lessons we can learn from all of that. So it's probably going to be one of those if I ever get around to writing another book. But at the moment, I'm focusing on my, uh, my other life.
And what would be the best way for our listeners to find more information about your work and also your book? Well, if you just Google me, um, you will find my um, presence on the St. Anthony's College, Oxford University website, so I can be contacted through that. Um, and if you Google me, you'll find all three of my books. You'll find them on Amazon and many articles. Recently, I've been writing quite a lot for a website called Unheard. That's U-N-H-E-R-D. Um, I've written three or four articles for them fairly recently and may write some more. I've written for the FT, for the Sunday Times, and for some overseas newspapers like the Toronto Globe and Mail, the Jerusalem Post. So there's stuff out there if people are interested, and they will be able to find, if they want to contact me, I'm always very happy to hear from my readers. But most important of all, they'll be able to find my uh, books in bookshops, on Amazon, and on other websites. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for your time.